If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. The facts are stubborn things. They did hack into this campaign. That shows that we have a deeply insecure president who understands that the noose is tightening because of this Russia investigation. And that's why I believe he has let Jim Comey go. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Off Script, hosting this weekend's show as Our Republic, Resilient As It Is, readies to celebrate its 241st birthday. Trumpcast is the show about the man whose portrait is eternally bathed in glory on the cover of Time magazine March 1st, 2009, at least in the salons and lobbies of his golf clubs around the world. Another president was so enshrined on Time's cover, the opening credits of HBO's Veep shows Selena Meyer. The headline, Is This Meyer's Moment? For six seasons so far, it has been Selena's moment, all the way to the Oval Office. But then she was exiled to her daughter's New York brownstone by way of the Whispering Sands Wellness Facility in Arizona for a little mental R&R. Judging from Trump's tweets this week, the most incendiary toward Morning Joe's Mika Brzezinski, one might think our president is overdue for a similar rejuvenating stay. But let me take you back 44 years. July 2nd, 1973. President Richard Milhouse Nixon, from his summer home in San Clemente, wrote of our Independence Day, As we near the bicentennial celebration of America's independence, we must come to measure the magnitude of our accomplishments. The spirit of 1976 will be as strong and meaningful as the spirit of 1776. Nixon thought he would be the man in office to ring in that bicentennial in his eighth year, the leader of the nation measuring the magnitude of its accomplishments. Instead, 13 months later, on August 8, 1974, he would be exiting prematurely. One night before that, in front of a nationally televised audience, he said this. I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. But as president, I must put the interests of America first. On HBO's Veep, Selena Meyer served a shorter time in office, an eight-month president until she was succeeded eventually by Laura Montez. In fiction or in real life, how does a presidency end? On the west front of the Capitol on a cold January morning? Or on the steps of Marine One taking off from the South Lawn, two fingers of each hand raised defiantly from the helicopter's steps? We've seen it both ways. For the love of our democracy, we vastly prefer the former to the latter. But among many who openly muse about a different kind of final curtain for Donald Trump, Frank Rich, the longtime New York Times columnist and now executive producer of Veep and next year's HBO drama Succession, has written the cover story of New York Magazine, Nixon, Trump, and How a Presidency Ends. He'll join me on the other side of the break. But first, let's do the tweets. Wow. CNN had to retract big story on Russia with three employees forced to resign. What about all the other phony stories they do? Fake news. 
So they caught fake news, CNN, cold. But what about NBC, CBS, and ABC? What about the failing New York Times and Washington Post? They're all fake news. The failing New York Times writes false story after false story about me. They don't even call to verify the facts of a story. Fake news joke. The Amazon Washington Post, sometimes referred to as the guardian of Amazon not paying internet taxes, which they should, is fake news. I heard poorly rated Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ crazy Micah along with Psycho Joe came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. Hey, Trumpcast listeners, Jason here, and I wanted to pop in with one last message before we get to the rest of the show. Are you a Slate Plus member yet? If not, why not? With Slate Plus, you can get ad-free versions of the show along with bonus segments. And this week, you can hear me chat with Slate's video editor, Amon Ishmael, about how an encounter at the Republican National Convention inspired his new series, Who's Afraid of Amon Ishmael? To sign up for Slate Plus, go to slate.com slash trumpcastplus. That's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Now let's get back to the show. Frank Rich is prolific, the theater critic of the New York Times from 1980 to 1993, and one of the paper's op-ed columnists from 1994 to 2011, and for the last six seasons, the executive producer of HBO's Veep. He's currently a writer-at-large for New York Magazine and weighed in with this week's whopper of a cover story, Nixon, Trump, and How a Presidency Ends. We're honored to have him on the program. Frank, welcome to Trumpcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Frank, if Nixon, if Richard Nixon could have tweeted, how might he use 140 characters to describe Elizabeth Drew back in the day at the height of her work for The New Yorker, the way Donald Trump sent a message to Mika Brzezinski this week? Uh Speaking in Nixon's voice, not my own, I would imagine Nixon would have uh, tweeted something like, disappointed broad. Uh, Can someone find out if she's Jewish? (laughs) Hey, Frank, why was it time for you to write sort of that ultimate comparison piece between Nixon's final years in 73 and 74 and what we're seeing today in 17? There were several things. First of all, I really felt uh, for all of the Trump Trump horrors, to use a term out of Watergate, the White House horrors, it really sort of began to jump the shark when Comey was fired. That seemed to me a true, you know, ramping up of problems for this White House and, and possibly criminal problems. And it, of course, happened simultaneously with people starting to lawyer up and repeated reports in Washington Post, New York Times, and other places of what seemed to be potentially obstructions of justice by the White House or by Trump reaching out to the heads of intelligence agencies, not just trying to squash Comey. At the same time, I lived through Watergate. I didn't cover it. I was beginning my journalism career, but I did 
I was from Washington. I grew up in Washington. I was very caught up in it, and, you know, in my early days as a political journalist. And I was thinking, gee, you know, it's been so long, and Watergate is a term that is just every single scandal now for 40-plus years it has been invoked. What really happened? How did Nixon really go? How did we get him out of there, a, a criminal uh, president? How might that be applicable to what's uh, happening uh, with Trump today, his possible endgame? And what's not applicable? What's apples and oranges? But it turned out there were many more apples to apples comparisons uh, than I expected. But at the same time, I realized that a lot of people don't remember Watergate, including people like me who, who lived through it as a, even as in young adulthood. And there's some things in the story that might give people a little bit of hope because as everyone's exasperated in this young presidency and feeling the world is going to end any minute, not possibly without a reason, Watergate wasn't built in a day. And what really happened is more interesting, more t- time consuming, and actually more hopeful for a possible Trump exit scenario uh, than we might have guessed. So let's travel back to July 1973, Frank, 44 years from where we sit today. Nixon said, as you begin in your piece, quote, let others wallow in Watergate. We're going to do our job. Contrary to how we think back on those days, Nixon had every reason to believe that the public was on his side when he said those words. Why? He did. Keep in mind, this is now... Uh, more than a year after the Watergate break-in. This is July of uh, of, uh, 73. This is nine months after Woodward and Bernstein basically said that Watergate break-in was a part of a much larger panoply of of possible criminal activities, sabotage for the democratic process and of the Democratic Party in particular. By this point, too, John Mitchell, who had been both Nixon's campaign manager and his attorney general had been indicted, and also the, the much fabled two months of daily daytime Watergate Senate Senate Watergate hearings chaired by Sam Irvin. The what did you know and when did you know it hearings, and the famous uh, question of uh, Howard Baker had had wrapped up. Even so, at that point, Gallup polls showed that only twenty two percent of the public uh, wanted Nixon out of office, and his and his approval rating was basically where Trump's is now, the upper, the upper 30s. Um, and he had major editorial support, uh, Nixon, from conservative outlets at that time, not only uh, an embryonic right-wing sort of talk radio uh, apparatus, but also very conservative, important daily papers like the Chicago Tribune and the Los Angeles Times uh, were very, uh, you know, let's forget about Watergate. Furthermore, places like the New York Times were reporting that during the congressional recess that summer, both Republican and Democratic congressmen were finding uh, that their constituents were saying, we're bored with this. Let's get back to the real issues. This all sounds familiar to people now. And so Nixon really felt, had a real reason to believe he could get away with it. And much of the press thought he would. No one thought he was in jeopardy. There hadn't, even at that time, when there were some very left-wing Democrats in Congress No one had even filed an impeachment uh, bill of any kind by that point. President Trump went to a rally last week in Iowa. Mm -hmm. As usual, the crowds are gathered to the rafters. You watch them in these fervent red state media markets where the president holds his rallies. You'd be hard pressed to think that the political carpet of support in Congress would be pulled from beneath Trump's feet. But you say just wait. 
Yes, because going back again to this juncture you just cited, July of, of 73, it was basically another 13 months before Nixon was out. And when it finally happened, it happened very fast. It did not really happen as people seem to sort of remember faultily now because of impeachment. It was only at the very end of his presidency that the House Judiciary Committee had an impeachment debate and drafted some articles and voted on some articles of impeachment. But by then he was sort of done anyway. It never went to the floor of the House. What happened is the midterm started approaching. The White House horrors and the horrible stories about Nixon kept proliferating. There are too numerous to mention here, but everything from the resignation of his vice president on a no, uh, on a, or basically a, a plea to avoid jail on, on tax evasion and, and, and perjury, the Saturday night massacre, the firing of the special counsel and the decimation basically of the top ranks of the Justice Department, all of that kept all these, this drip, 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 and more revelations kept happening. But it really was not until you got to late spring and early summer of uh, really late spring, technically, of 74, that Republicans who were scared about facing the voters in midterm started to bolt. And one important point in this, um, a lot of people have repeatedly said, well, of course, Nixon, they got rid of Nixon because the Democrats controlled the House and Senate in his day, whereas Trump uh, has the protection, the shield of uh, Republicans controlling both houses of Congress now. That's actually a false analogy. It's, it's technically true. But in those days, many Democrats, most of whom would later become Republicans as, as the Republican Party pursued its Southern strategy, but there were a number of Democrats who were huge Nixon supporters. They were, they were Southern conservative Democrats in both the House and Senate. So one reason Nixon was protected was that uh, he had actually enough votes from Democrats and Republicans alike. And so the Democrats couldn't do it alone and go after him. What had to happen was Republican congressmen and senators feeling that they were in jeopardy in the new election started to bolt. Frank, you note that Nixon drank often to excess. Trump does not touch the stuff. But you make the interesting observation that, quote, Trump's body seems to be bloating in stress as Nixon's phlebitis-stricken leg did. Now, no one is a more acute observer of theater, political and otherwise, than you. As a theater critic and theater observer, what are you seeing behind the curtain or under the collar from our current lead actor of presidential stagecraft? Well, let's face it. He looks terrible. His performance is increasingly um, out of control. Nixon, even though he drank and did run off the rails from time to time in public, uh, never ran off the rails this much and not so continuously over such a compressed period of time. What's interesting about Trump is, unlike Nixon was a terrible television personality. Roger Ailes' career began in the 68 election by trying to teach television to Richard Nixon because he, 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 didn't, he thought television was a gimmick. Trump, obviously, is a master of a certain kind of television. So to see him now have no ability to hit his mark, if you will, to stay on any kind of uh, script, uh, including really scripts that worked for him in the past, it's, I think it's, you know, it's kind of a fiasco for him. It's not a fiasco with his base, I might add. The fact is that even something like the, the Mika Brzezinski tweet, that's going to continue to rally the base. And, and those of us 
who are aghast at that are just going to have to accept the fact. You also have to remember the case of Nixon, even after it was clear he was involved in criminal activities, even as he was resigning, even as the most incriminating White House tapes came out, he still had an approval rating the day he resigned of 24 percent. That base was loyal to to him. Um, Nate Silver, uh, the, the polling analyst, uses the, the uh, poll finding of strongly approving of, a, of, a, of Trump as being a, a, a way to sort of uh, quantify his base. 30% of the public strongly approved of, of Trump after he was inaugurated. That's now down somewhere in the 20s. Those people are going to be with him whatever happens. They're, as Trump said, they're going to be with him if he pulls out a gun and shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue. Frank, we look at, you know, Nixon was a tough son of a bitch, a naval officer in the Pacific World War II, senator from California, eight years vice president, and entering the White House at age 56 compared to Trump's 70. Compare Nixon's hold on office back then and what he did to hold on to what you're seeing with the White House's current occupant. Well, there are certain things that are very similar. For instance, in charge of his dirty tricks were people like Howard Hunt and uh, G. Gordon Liddy, who were ideologues, right-wing ideologues, reckless, no sense of the law. Indeed, G. G. Gordon Liddy even was sort of alt-right before its time and had a organized a screening of Lenny Riefenstahl's Nazi propaganda film, Triumph of the Will, in the White House, if you please. Um, Where did you find that tidbit? That was an amazing piece. That is from a superb, and I emphasize a superb uh, new biography of Nixon called Richard Jack Farrell's Life. Yes, I don't know him. I'm in complete admiration of this book. There's a I've read a lot on Nixon. There's been a lot of great literature about Nixon. This is quite a one-volume achievement written with a tremendous amount of style and a certain amount of new information. But yes, that, in fact, I attributed to him in the piece. That's just an amazing find, although, of course, it's kind of like deep. He wrote that, and this book was published before we knew about the old right and the, and the Trump White House in this way. But there's a kind of Flynn-Bannon quality to some of the people around Nixon, a recklessness and a, and a desire to win at all costs and to serve a paranoid president with an enemies list uh, and a president who loathed the media every bit as much as Trump did and hated Democrats and all the rest of it. Where Nixon had an advantage, at least theoretically, is he actually was a lawyer, had been a successful lawyer of sorts, and then used uh, his legal acumen in public office. And so one uh, lecture he constantly gave to his own staff, not apropos of Watergate, per se, but just in general, remember, the cover-up will get you before the crime. That was from real experience, because when, as a member of the House, he in the McCarthy era, he was on the House on American Activities Committee, and it pursued uh, the State Department uh, red, or at least alleged red at the time, Alger Hiss. Uh, he never got Hiss on being a Soviet spy at, at that time, but Hiss was convicted of perjury, the cover-up, if you will. And so at least Nixon knew what the rule of law was, even as he was trying to break the rule of law. Trump doesn't even understand what the rule of law is, not just because he's uh, not a lawyer, it's just something he knows basic kind of stuff you learn, you know, in ninth grade civics class. And so he's constantly creating legal problems for himself that Nixon uh, never would. And, you know, when Trump, you know, declared let's to Russia, told them let's get all those Hillary Clinton emails during the campaign and and make them public, I think that that would have Nixon 
rolling in his grave. It's just, you know, how stupid can you be if you're going to be involved with the Russians or, or be suspected of it? Why would you do everything possible to call attention to possible uh, criminal activity? Frank, we look, at, we look at some of the comments just this week in response to that tweet uh, about Mika Brzezinski from senior Republican leaders on the Hill, and we look to Congress and we long for heroes, some of them that you reference in your piece in New York Magazine, men and women of character willing to do what Howard Baker and Lowell Weicker did initially, followed by that infamous trip up to the White House by Barry Goldwater and Hugh Scott, the Senate Minority Leader, and John Rhodes, the House Minority Leader. How much of that mythology really is true, and what might you expect in coming weeks, months, years from the likes of Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell? I a lot of the mythology about the good Republican, the good establishment moderate Republican who got rid of uh, Nixon is false. And uh, there's documentary evidence, including from Pat Buchanan, the loyal Nixonator who's published a new memoir that deals in part with the Watergate uh, years. What in fact happened was sort of what we're seeing now, the equivalent of McConnell and, and Paul Ryan, uh, the Republican uh, leaders in Congress, did nothing during most of Watergate, absolutely nothing. And it sort of faded into history, as Buchanan points out. It's now historians have written that a day or two before Nixon resigned, uh, he was visited, as you said, by the congressional, Republican congressional leaders, plus Barry Goldwater, senator from Arizona, defeated presidential candidate and sort of an eminence grief, obviously, the Republican Party, and told him to go. His, Nixon's resignation letter was already written. That was just a bit of political theater at the time, basically, I think, to get them on the right side of history. And my guess is if there's a day that comes when McConnell, Ryan, and let's say a current Arizona senator, John McCain, go and visit Trump and say you have to go, that'll be very near the end and he'll already be out the door anyway. The truth is that Republicans did nothing. They complained often not for attribution to to reporters like Elizabeth Drew that how is Nixon doing this? He's destroying his presidency. I wish they're literally, you hear congressmen, you know, 40 years ago, 40 plus years ago saying, I wish there weren't a, cha- a chaos in the White House. I wish there weren't a crisis every day. All the stuff Republicans are saying now, usually not for attribution. Lowell Weicker and Howard Baker, who were the tough questioners on the Senate Watergate committee, were not part of the Republican leadership. Uh, they were just on that committee. Even so, that didn't happen until over a year after the Watergate break-in. And, but they were not people who were running the party. That would be, you know, if Ben Sass or someone like that were doing it today in a hearing. So this myth, that, that this feeling that, oh, my God, you know, if only we had people of more sterling, uh, less craven character than enablers like McConnell and Ryan, like they did during Watergate, everything would be hunky-dory. It's just false. That was just not the case. Furthermore, there was evidence there was a piece in the actually a op-ed piece in the Times in the past month by one of the investigators of the Watergate committee that uh, Howard Baker, the you know what did you know and when did you know it questioner, the Republican um, leading Republican on the committee was trying still to early on to soft pedal the Nixon crimes to try to uh, stall things and do much the kind of stuff that, you know, we associate uh, with a Trey Gowdy or whomever today uh, until finally he couldn't take any more and 
went over to uh, the other side on Nixon. Frank Rich, when you're writing columns for the New York Times between 1994 and, I guess, 2011, I'm sure that over over that period of time, you get summoned to the White House by uh, Mike McCurry or Joe Lockhart or Ari Fleischer or Tony Snow or Robert Gibbs, and you have an opportunity to interact with the press office and then ultimately the president to get what's on their mind as they approach a State of the Union or another major moment in their presidency. Compare that to what you actually are seeing now every day between Sean Spicer and this current White House press office. Compare that to the way Ron Ziegler, the one-time Jungle Cruise guide at Disney World, managed the White House press office. Right. I'm always, I'm very um, wary of the PR aspects of any presidency. I wrote a whole book about the disingenuous Bush propaganda organization during the run-up to the war in Iraq, but I don't really trust any of them. I, I you know, and I, I feel access journalism, as far as the White House concerned, is very, very overrated. So in the case of today, we're seeing the, you know, the reductio ad absurdum of it, but Ron Ziegler is interesting because he sort of uh, in, invented this kind of spin. Ziegler was, I believe, the first modern White House press sec- secretary who was not a former reporter. Up until then, they, they, there'd been people like Pierre Salinger, you know, they'd been newspaper reporters or broadcast journalists. Ziegler was a flack, began uh, indeed as a tour guide on the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland, but then worked for a, a big ad agency, I think, J. Walter Thompson, I'm not sure. So he was a flack. He was not uh, a journalist, and he was not someone in public life. They lie with impunity. Much of the techniques they used are being, are identical to what uh, we're seeing today from people like Spicer and Kellyanne Conway and, and all the rest of them. They would say that you know the, the liberal media, they then called it the, the Eastern elitist media was the term of art, is out to out to get uh, the president in collusion with Democrats. They're trying to overthrow an election that the Democrats lost and try to change the results by other means. They would unequivocally deny every single finding of a Woodward and Bernstein. Then they would say, and by the way, there are four or five investigations that have proven that the Nixon White House did anything wrong. Trump also uh, his people also do. And, you know, uh, they would try to discredit the press and do everything possible to discredit the press. So we're seeing that kind of ugliness again by perhaps less talented group of uh, dissemblers. I mean, one of Ziegler's deputies, for instance, was the then very young Diane Sawyer, who was involved in not actually dealing with the press one-on-one, but in probably in a much smarter way than Ziegler could, could constructing defenses to various Watergate charges, and she remained at the White House to the end and indeed went... Went up to New Jersey went, with him. Went, yeah, I think, I think maybe to San Clemente, maybe to California, but, work, but in any event, worked on his memoirs with him. That's right. Um, so that was, if tragedy is replayed as farce, we're sort of seeing the farcical version. But of course, not, no one in the Trump White House seems to have any knowledge of history, even Watergate history, and so they don't even know that, they're, that, this, that all this stuff has been tried before and ultimately blows up. They, I think they must think they're being incredibly uh, clever. You know, you mentioned, you write in your piece and you end your piece by noting that at the beginning of Watergate, 
or at the nadir of Watergate, the president's President Nixon's approval ratings at 27 percent and it fell to 24 percent at his resignation, which is still one out of four supporting him. How do you see this all ending for President Trump? I don't know. No one knows. But my guess is one point I tried to make is, you know, even after Nixon hit 27, he had a spike like a month later. There are going to be ups and downs. But my feeling is the erosion, if it hasn't hit already, is really going to hit essentially a year from now as as the 2018 campaign uh, gets going in earnest. And and he's going to have fewer and fewer friends in his own party. And I think it's going to be very hard for him to cope. It's already seeming hard for him to cope. I mean, the, the Brzezinski tweet is interesting beyond, you know, we know what a sexist piggy is and all of that, but it's so, um, it's so out of control when he's, when this healthcare bill is fighting for its life, it makes you, as people speculate, it makes you wonder if there's, he's already reached that sort of mental meltdown point that Nixon took much, many months more to reach when he was talking to pictures on the wall in the white house uh, and, and that kind of thing. So he's such he's such a wild card. Who knows? But my feeling is that the internal gears of Republican politics are going to uh, grind him up when there are, according to various you know observers, analysts of this, somewhere between 60, 70, 80 House seats that they could uh, uh, Republicans could lose in 2018. And the fact is, even if the Democrats don't take the House back, even if they don't get enough seats, the 24 they need. It's going to be such gridlock and such a governmental mess. I just don't know. I don't know what's in it for Trump. He's not going to turn it around. He's not going to enjoy it. I think it's a very combustible situation. My hope is it won't even last that long. But I think that's sort of, you know, I, 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 I would be shocked if he makes it past uh, 2018. But I could entirely be wrong. I've been speaking with Frank Rich, executive producer of Veep and author of this week's cover story of New York Magazine, Nixon, Trump and how a presidency ends. Frank, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with you. And that's the show for today. Did you like it? Tweet at us and let us know what you think. You can find us at RealTrumpCast. That's at RealTrumpCast. And if you haven't checked out one of our other Slate shows, I recommend you check out The Gist It's hosted by my friend Mike Pesca, and it's an excellent daily podcast that covers politics, culture, and all the stuff you think about with your friends and family. Recent guests include the author Don Winslow, the Washington Post reporter Mark Fisher, and Anne Helen Peterson, who is covering politics out west for BuzzFeed. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.